about to hear one of the most incredible true stories that you will likely ever hear. Even as I say these words, I realise that this story is just too incredible for most people to believe. And yet, it did actually happen, exactly as I tell it. It happened to me. And telling you this story now is an opportunity for me to evaluate it critically. I therefore won't hold back. I won't hold back in the details of the story, knowing full well that what I say is unbelievable. And I won't hold back in being as critical as I can in evaluating what happened. The events of this story seem to defy the currently known laws of physics. I know, but I am open to the fact that I could have been deceived. We really only know what our senses provide us. And since that is always open to illusion or mistake, the certainty that is inherent to real knowledge is always lacking. We could always be wrong. I don't think I'm wrong, but I could, in fact, always be wrong. That doubt I honestly believe to be enormously healthy in discovering the truth. The truth has nothing to fear from critique. If anything, logical critique of the truth only further illustrates its truthfulness. Just as the gold miner exposes the gold to extremely high temperatures to burn off impurities, so too must we expose the most truthful of statements to the highest level of critique. Understanding this story, then, necessarily goes deep into what it means to know something, what it means to prove something, and how, as critical thinkers, we can approach a subject as crazy as Qigong. In the summer of 2019, I got on an aeroplane and travelled from Shanghai to Thailand to meet the teacher of one of my best friends and classmate here at university in Shanghai, a guy I've got to know very well over the years, a guy called Rudy. What I felt with my own body and witnessed with my own eyes happened to tens of other people repeatedly for an entire week was nothing short of the most incredible thing I have ever felt or seen. I felt a very strong electric-like current generated in the body of my friend and his friends, who were all students of Dr. Joel, being transmitted into my own body, much like the kind of electric shock you get from the mains electricity that powers household appliances, but running continuously for a number of seconds. It really hurt and caused the muscles of my arm to contract involuntarily so that my elbow shot up in the air and my arm tensed up. This was not a unique event. Such things had been commonplace for many of the people there for many years. In that week, I saw Dr. Joe treat patient after patient after patient. All of them had travelled across the world to get treatment from Dr. Joe, who, with very thick needles, performed what I can only describe as surgery, along with emitting this electric-like current with his body into the patients that he treated, in order to complement the body's healing that he had started with his unconventionally painful acupuncture-like surgery with very thick needles. I witnessed a woman with a musculoskeletal injury 
who had been wheelchair-bound for years of agonising pain, a woman who couldn't even smile upon first meeting her, not only get up and walk, but dance. I saw a disabled child, blindfolded so he wouldn't be afraid, react in a way that I think would be almost impossible to fake. All of this I'll explain at great length in part two of this two-part What on Earth is Qigong series. In truth, the story doesn't start in Thailand in 2019. Once again, this story is just so epic, it really demands a rational look at a context that stretches far back through time. What on earth is Qigong? Two previous episodes of Critical Mind Embodied Spirit, the episodes on What is Qi Part 1 and What is Qi Part 2, I gradually critically analysed the meaning of the Chinese word Qi from the perspectives of linguistics as well as classical Chinese and modern physiology. So if you've got some time and you're not totally bored with the sound of my voice by now, do have a listen to those episodes first as they will help to orient you with plain English in this complex landscape of ideas inherent to the Chinese language. The history of ideas is invariably a long, stormy love affair, where terms and the concepts they represent collide over thousands of years, make love, have babies, fall out, break up, meet other ideas and have more babies that end up as ideological relatives who make war, make love again, form families of their own, and the rest is a history that resembles a soap opera. The history of the word qigong and the concepts that encompass it are a case in point. Whilst the word qigong has only really been around in common use for about 70 years, Archaeological evidence unearthed from the Baoji Dig in Shanxi province in northern China in the 1980s discovered pottery dating to the late Neolithic period, about 7,000 years ago, depicting a Qigong posture that is still practiced today. Archaeologists have suggested that this represents a hermaphroditic unity embodied in the shaman, or as the great historian Mycea Iliadi says, these priest shamans are regarded as the intermediaries between the two cosmological planes, earth and sky, and also from the fact that they combine in their own person the feminine elements, earth, and the masculine elements, sky. To cover a 7,000-year-old ideological soap opera of love affairs, breakups, and makeovers would be beyond the scope of this podcast. Briefly put, however, the history of Qigong can be divided into five periods.
first period being that of the aforementioned Neolithic shamanism, from which material evidence covers reliefs on pottery and inscriptions on oracle bones or turtle shells used in pyromantic divination, which is divination using fire. We know that practitioners at this time were performing certain postures, and that those postures had something to do with the unity of heaven and earth, man and woman, as well as fertility. The second period in the history of Qigong starts somewhere before 1050 BCE, when the first real solid historical evidence of the Book of Changes, the Yi Jing, pops up, as on the banks of the Yellow River, King Zhou Wen presided over the twilight of the Shang dynasty, the earliest dynasty in Chinese history. The Book of Changes and other classics up to the Han dynasty, which covers a period of 400 years from roughly 200 BCE, gave birth to the concepts of yin and yang, Confucianism and Taoism. Qigong at this point focused on the promotion of health through synchronizing with the rhythms of nature in a specifically non-religious manner. In chapter 10 of the Tao Te Ching, an ancient classic of philosophy, self-help and politics, Lao Tzu, who you might know as Lao Tzu, wrote during this period, when one's intelligence and one's animal soul are embraced as one, they needn't separate. When one concentrates on qi, he or she can be soft as a baby. Along with Lao Tzu, or Lao Tzu, the other super famous Taoist founder from this period was a bloke named Zhuang Tzu. Zhuang Tzu said, the real person, i.e. the sage, breathes from his heels. Everyone else breathes from their throat. So whilst we don't know exactly what these venerable dudes were doing, we can infer that these great scholars living before 200 BCE were doing some pretty deep breathing. The classics of Chinese medicine written during this period like the Yellow Emperor's Inner Classic and the Classic of Difficulties, provide the medical framework from which Qigong exists. They introduce us to breathwork and the theories of generating qi, or energy, from jing, essential substances in the body, like hormones and neurotransmitters, and then using that to power shen, or consciousness. That the qi of the human body is derived from essential substances called jing, some of which are prenatal and some of which are postnatal, and that the qi is then manipulated in order to develop and nourish shen or consciousness is perhaps the main hallmark of qigong, and we can really see for the first time these ideas being written down in this second period leading up to the Han Dynasty in around 200 BCE. I've explored what qi and jing are at great lengths in What on Earth is Qi? Parts 1 and 2. So if you're interested in the theory behind qigong, that's a great place to start. 
but I'll proceed assuming that you've already listened to those episodes and, and already have that knowledge. The third period, the Han Dynasty, saw the introduction of Buddhism to China. Just as the Apostle Paul was returning to Rome with Nero on the throne, the year 58 AD saw the Emperor Han Mingdi officially introduce Buddhism to China, and with it, meditative practices originating in India, taught by the Buddha, but from a much older period than the one in which the Buddha actually lived. The next 500 years saw an enormous amount of spiritual innovation in China, pollinated by the great scholars of India. Stillness meditation became popular, and the explicit motivation of becoming a Buddha to benefit others, or bodhicitta, became one of the main reasons why people were practicing qigong not just for health, as was the case in the previous period. In the next, or fourth period, many of the juiciest legends that we now associate with Qigong really started to kick in, with the arrival in China and on the scene sometime from the early 5th to 6th centuries AD of an Indian or Persian prince named Bodhidharma the founder of Chan, or, or Zen, Buddhism. With a copy of the Lankavatara Sutra in his knapsack, and a reputation for staring at walls for a very long time, in one legend he stared at a cave wall for nine whole years without speaking, Bodhidharma supposedly rocked up to the Shaolin Temple, back when it was just another fairly unremarkable Buddhist temple, only to find the monks in really poor physical shape. Like many skinny Buddhist meditators of today, and I count myself as one of those, who could f benefit from packing on some muscle and doing a bit of cardio, the monks of Shaolin had all but forgotten that a healthy mind goes together with a healthy body. Bodhidharma supposedly taught the monks of Shaolin Lohanquan, or Arhat Fist, named after an Arhat, or someone who has achieved his or her own personal nirvana, but not full enlightenment. So, hasn't become a Buddha, but has left samsara, or left this world. Thus begun the legend of Shaolin being a mecca, and now more of a Disneyland for Chinese martial arts. The myth attributed to Bodhidharma states that he left behind two really important Qigong classics. One called the Muscle and Tendon Changing Classic, which has survived to this day, and another called the Brain and Marrow Changing Classic, of which there is an oral tradition today, but the original text didn't survive. That, however, hasn't stopped countless Qigong practitioners through the ages discovering the book. And if you did a cursory online search, there would be nothing to suggest that there's no primary source text at all. Plenty of people are practicing a plethora of techniques that claim to be the brain and marrow changing classic. 
but there's nothing to suggest that what they're doing has anything to do with an Indian or Persian man who came to China in the 5th or 6th century. The historical coherence of the muscle and tendon changing classic, which is the other classic attributed to Bodhidharma, is also somewhat dodgy. Modern scholarly research suggests it might only be about 400 years old. Whether that matters or not, I'll leave up to you. But needless to say, there is hard archaeological evidence of similar postures that date to thousands of years BC. In addition to a pattern of at least some people trying really hard to give credence to what they're doing by falsely claiming an ancient lineage as well as an awful lot of other people guzzling down the myth like it was Ribena on a hot day. I've been taught two versions of the muscle and tendon changing classic. One Shaolin style version that changed muscles and tendons by straining with muscular tension, and the other passed down by Shanghainese clinical massage therapists, which used relaxation and joint expansion to relax muscles and strengthen tendons. So, whilst sharing similar postures and the same names, both versions are about as different from each other as two things that look the same could possibly be. Perhaps this is the absolute epitome of Chinese whispers, and it seems to illustrate the fact that there really is no real standard in Qigong a fact that gives everyone the possible claim of being the one true method, and, at the same time, leaves the whole thing open to a lot of rubbish. Going back to the fourth period in the historical development of Qigong, Qigong flourished in the centuries leading from Bodhidharma to the 20th century. Thousands of treatises were written on the subject, most of which survive until today. This period saw the development of Qigong both as a part of Chinese medicine and its many branches dealing with acupuncture, herbalism, massage therapy and other forms of bodywork, as well as in the field of martial arts. And during this period, unlike previous periods, the general public in China really started to have access to instruction on Qigong and to practice it. Whilst the first phase was shamanic, the second scholarly, the third religious, the fourth was largely about medicine and martial arts. The development of Tai Zi Quan, what we call Tai Chi, Xing Yi and Ba Gua Zhang, the three main internal styles of Chinese martial arts are all part of this period in the development of Qigong. Tibetan Buddhism was also a major contributor to Qigong theory and practice during this time as Tibet continued to churn out intellectual and spiritual powerhouses like Jade Tsongkhapa in the 14th century, to name but one, who successfully merged the rigorous analytical tradition of Indian logic with ancient Indian tantric practices that used meditation to guide the flow of qi, 
lung or wind in Tibetan to specific parts of the body in order to enact specific changes in consciousness. These highly refined practices were migrating east off the Qinghai Tibetan plateau and down into the cultural centers of lowland China. If you walk the halls at the center of the Forbidden City in Beijing, you will see displayed an impressive collection of tantric ornaments, such as bells and vajras from the 17th century, belonging to the Tibetan savant Changya Rulpe Dorje, who was, by all accounts, best buddy to the emperor Tianlong and teacher of his Qing dynasty court. Such a close relationship between the Chinese aristocracy, who played a large role in the codification and dissemination of knowledge, and Tibetan Buddhist teachers, was not uncommon during the last millennia, and thus the experiences of Tibetan Buddhist practitioners and the ancient Indian practices that they brought with them, particularly Tantra, had a large and tangible influence on the development of Qigong during this fourth and penultimate phase in its development. The fifth and final stage in the development of Qigong so far takes us from the end of the last dynasty, the Qing dynasty, in 1911 to the modern era. Despite only being about a hundred years, which is small change in Chinese historical terms, the impact of this period on Qigong has been enormous. To put this into perspective, since the beginning of the first Chinese dynasty, the Shang dynasty, in around 1500 BC, up to 1911, China was doing a similar thing for 3,000 years. For 3,000 years, China was ruled by an emperor whose power was legitimized by the Mandate of Heaven in which power flowed down the strict hierarchy and was absolute at every level. So, from a farm worker to their parents, all the way up through the emperor to heaven, you didn't challenge the ideas of your superiors. And in many fields of knowledge, with a few notable exceptions, each generation worked really hard to copy the previous generation. As you can imagine, Whilst giving birth to, arguably, the most efficient nation-state the world has ever seen, in the absence of open dialectics, or the free conflict of ideas with each other, this was a fertile breeding ground for a lot of mumbo-jumbo. The China that Mao Zedong inherited with the founding of the People's Republic of China in 1949 was still very much a feudal country, with feudal Confucian thinking. What many people might forget in the culture wars between the West and China is that China desperately needed to be modernized. And that modernization, with a Marxist ideology at the helm, has dictated that the scientific method be the principal lens through which to adopt and to abandon orthodox practice. Qigong and its wider framework of traditional Chinese medicine was suddenly brought out of the medieval period, standardised and given to the people in accessible ways, like in universities and in hospitals. Practices that couldn't repeatedly demonstrate a tangible result were just abandoned. 
Now, if you want to become a doctor of Chinese medicine in the PRC, there are mandatory courses in chemistry, biochemistry, microbiology, and the hard, cold sciences. In fact, it seems that almost half of my five-year traditional Chinese medical degree here in China was taken up studying units in the sciences. Whilst this definitely has its limitations and has personally driven me to the brink of insanity, assessing a practice by its tangible results does have its advantages. The word qigong was coined in this final modern period. And therefore, what we now know and practice as qigong is really a product of this very long period of evolution, adaptation, dialectics, and eventually modern scientific thinking. But that's certainly not what you might find down at your local qigong class you might well find something that's a pick and mix from roughly 7,000 years of recorded practice. So really, it could be just about anything. Before the word qigong was coined in the 20th century, before the 20th century, people didn't really talk about qigong. Instead, they talked about nei gong and wai gong. Gong in all of these cases means work. Nei means inside and wai means outside. So nei gong is inner work and wai gong is outer work. What? inner work and outer work mean exactly is also largely dependent upon who you talk to. For some, outer work, waigong, is qigong that first conditions the body's physical structure so that it can effectively produce and store energy, which is done more subtly during inner work or neigong. For others, outer work, waigong, is an inherently physical work done on the body's production, storage, and distribution of energy, whereas inner work, neigong, is more of a mental effort done through meditation. For still others, neigong is just synonymous with stage magicians and con artists ripping off gullible students. In fact, if you look for neigong on social media platforms, you can have a look at a wonderfully motley crew of frauds, cheats and phonies doing the most bizarre things, as well as a lot of self-proclaimed spiritual masters complete with a daily picture of themselves meditating. Despite the best efforts of the 20th century, there still remains no real gold standard for what these words mean, and each teacher, school and lineage seem to have a different definition. What might be more helpful than giving a summary of all these different ideas would be to step back and revisit the meaning of the word qigong that we touched upon in the episode What is Qi? Part 2, The Physiological Perspective. In classical Chinese physiology, there are many different types of qi, all of which refer to either breath itself or some kind of energy produced or used by the body. Therefore, qigong, rightly, refers to any practice that works on breathing, 
or that works out the body's ability to generate, store, distribute, or use any form of energy. We can thus divide Qigong into roughly four different categories, but you won't find these categories in books on Qigong. By and large, in books on Qigong, you will find myths, legends, and specific practices that fall into three of these four different categories. The first category, which you're unlikely to find any books on in the Qigong section of your local bookstore, would be any physical exercise whatsoever, from skipping to lifting weights to playing football. These are, of course, all forms of Qigong because they all work out the body's ability to generate, store, distribute, or use different forms of qi, like yang qi oxygen, or zhen qi, the qi that flows in the meridians, or wei qi, the energy of the immune system. If you want to practice qigong, surely one of the best forms is to do a strenuous cardiovascular workout. Your body will be able to generate, store, distribute, and use lots of different types of energy if it's healthy. You'd think that that goes without saying. The most advanced Qigong practitioners I've ever met have all been great meditators. All forms of single-pointed meditation, when done properly, serve as Qigong. In classical Chinese philosophy and physiology, the development of what's called shamatha in Sanskrit, or calm-abiding meditation, where one has developed a single-pointed concentration that remains for four-plus hours undisturbed in one place is one of the best ways to generate, store, distribute, and use energy. Whilst you might not be able to concentrate for four hours, I can hardly manage four minutes, a little bit of meditation goes a very long way. From Confucius through Lao Tzu, and almost every great author of Chinese medicine would attest to, relaxed concentration engenders pliancy in the body and mind. Where there is excess tension, there eventually follows disease. Where there is excess tension, the flow of life is limited. Ultimately, the flow of blood is limited, and with it the gas exchange that is required for cellular metabolism that biochemical qi transformation that keeps the lights on. Relaxed, single-pointed concentration allows the channels to open. When the channels are open and nothing else is wrong, the body is painless and one has the basis for a good state of health. Powerful concentration then enables you to drive the other various mechanisms for leading different types of qi to different parts of your body. No matter how good the mechanism is, if you're a poor driver, then you won't get very far. The sage envisaged by countless different Chinese schools of thought throughout the past few millennia is relaxed and concentrated. So if you can't meditate, 
but you can relax and you can concentrate for a little while, then that's surely a really good start. Whilst there are many terms to refer to different types of meditation, Qigong practitioners often refer to this form of Qigong practice simply as stillness. The next and penultimate category of Qigong that you'll find out there encompasses what most of the general public in China and abroad probably think of when they say the word Qigong. In other words, those static and moving postures, a little bit like yoga but from China, that you might learn down at the village hall or up on Songshan at the Shaolin Temple. There are literally thousands of different forms, sets of postures, moves and methods in this category, but they all share one thing in common, that they are exercises that primarily work on the body's dense connective tissue, deep fascia, tendons, ligaments and bone. For this reason, for the sake of plain speaking, I termed this category structural qigong to highlight that these practices primarily work on the structure of the physical body. How they do this varies greatly. Generally, we can identify two main mechanisms, namely aligned relaxation with expansion and, on the other hand, aligned tension. Perhaps the most prominent example of a Qigong set that utilizes the former type, aligned relaxation with expansion, would be Tai Chen, what we call Tai Chi, of which much has already been said in previous episodes of this podcast. Briefly put, this type of Qigong enables the various energies of the body, i.e. kinetic energy, blood flow, consciousness, etc., to cycle smoothly through the body by stacking joints in straight lines, isolating deep fascia through muscular relaxation, connecting the body with the thoracolumbar fascia mechanism, isolating movement of the waist without adduction of the knees, thus functionally connecting the feet with the hands, and then pumping up kinetic energy from the floor through the deep longitudinal and lateral systems. Many soft structural qigong systems share many postural similarities and biomechanical tools as the tai chi mechanism. Within a relaxed state, the head is raised, the chin is tucked, the tip of the tongue is on the top of the palate, the shoulders and elbows are sunk, the pelvis is rotated posteriorly, the waist is relaxed, the buttocks are tucked, the anus is sucked up, the knees pushed slightly out, and the toes either relaxed or grasping the ground. Now, if you Google Baoji archaeological dig, you'll find pottery dating back 7,000 years with a relief of a man in this posture, with a massive erection. Whilst there's a lot of variation in movement and posture, and often one qigong system can either be taught using relaxation or tension, generally I would include many widely practiced qigong forms in this soft structural qigong category, like the eight brocades or the five animal plays, or the Ma Wang Dui Dao Yin, and most other forms of Zhan Zhuang. 
It might be a bitter pill to swallow for Qigong nerds out there listening to this podcast, but these practices don't necessarily have anything to do with storing qi in the lower dantian, which is the energetic centre in the hypogastric region of the abdomen. They don't necessarily have anything to do with converting yuan qi from mingmen, the gate of life, a point between the kidneys, and if you just stand in these postures, you're not connecting the ren mai with the du mai, the conception and the governor vessels, to make the microcosmic orbit, or the xiao zhou tian. That stuff, in the Chinese medical vernacular, describes what happens in bioelectrical qigong, which is the final type of qigong that we'll cover in this series. When all of that stuff happens, there are tangible demonstratable changes that occur to the body that enable you to create and emit a strong electric-like current that would convince even the staunchest of disbelievers. Thinking about that Chinese medical theory is, in my opinion, and in the opinion of the most accomplished practitioners of bioelectric qigong that I've ever met, not only unnecessary for anyone other than a professional meditator to think about, but also counterproductive to practice. If you're going to get anywhere with Qigong, it should be extremely simple. Too much theory is a distraction. For most of us, for the first few decades of practice, relaxing, concentrating, breathing, and generally otherwise being a very healthy human being is by far the best practice that we can do. Overcomplicate it, and you often find yourself wasting decades of your life. The other type of commonly practiced structural qigong is hard and uses tension. Instead of encouraging natural processes to flow smoothly in the body, hard structural qigong uses mental, physical and respiratory force, as well as sometimes external conditioning methods, to toughen the body. This is what Shaolin excels at. Iron shirt, iron throat, punching buckets of sand, chopping bricks in half with your hands, having heavy planks of wood smashed over your head, that kind of thing. All of this is qigong too, and whilst you really don't need Chinese medical theory to explain it, you certainly do need enormous control over your breathing and extreme mental fortitude. From my experience, this form of qigong is also primarily working on the dense connective tissue of the body, and that's why I've categorised it as structural qigong. Of course, these structural qigong practices, be they hard or soft, almost always come with some form of breathwork. With soft structural qigong, purposeful, embodied, slowing down with deep breathing is often all it takes to break the cycle of fight or flight that most of us get stuck in at work or the rest of life at some point. Even without the famed and often mispracticed ideas from bioelectrical qigong of making a microcosmic orbit in your body, 
structural qigong really is quite incredible in its exercise of jing qi shen, which is essential substances jing, energy, qi, and consciousness shen. Just as in Chinese medicine, the lung system is the qi ji or qi mechanism for the entire body, so too can we say that breathing sets the tone for the autonomic nervous system. Like its name suggests, the autonomic nervous system regulates automatic functions in the body, like heart rate, liver function, digestion, that kind of thing. If you breathe slowly, deeply, and naturally, elongating the outbreath, then you activate what's called the parasympathetic aspect of the autonomic nervous system, the rest and digest, or feed and breed aspect. The parasympathetic nervous system encourages the dilation of blood vessels, the secretion of body fluids, the stimulation of digestion, increase in metabolism, and the slowing of the heart rate. It's the nervous system telling the rest of our body that it's okay to relax and to work on the things that are necessary for good health but don't involve running away from or fighting a threat. Chronic activation of the other side of the autonomic nervous system, the sympathetic nervous system, our fight or flight state, is, of course, related to all kinds of health problems. The parasympathetic nervous system, on the other hand, plays a key role in the body's inflammation reflex, where inflammation is controlled through a negative feedback loop by the action of a neurotransmitter, acetylcholine, which is the main messenger molecule in the parasympathetic nervous system. The importance of having a strong, parasympathetic, rest-and-digest, feed-and-breed nervous system capable of effectively regulating our responses to stress is evident when you consider how chronic inflammatory diseases are recognised as the most significant cause of death in the world today, with more than 50% of all deaths being attributable to inflammation-related diseases, such as ischemic heart disease, stroke, cancer, and diabetes, to mention just a few. When you consider this, you can start to appreciate just how important the parasympathetic nervous system really is. Acetylcholine, that messenger molecule in the parasympathetic nervous system, not only plays a main role in the inflammation reflex, it also increases neuroplasticity, i.e. the forming of new connections between neurons, along with playing a big role in arousal and reward in the central nervous system, as well as learning, memory, and the promotion of REM sleep. So with the deep, slow breathing explicitly taught in soft, structural qigong, a vast array of benefits can be enacted in the autonomic nervous system and in the central nervous system. Thinking about qigong theory, because I don't have a degree in biochemistry, I personally find it much easier to appreciate that acetylcholine is one of those essential substances of the body called jing that many types of human qi or energy is derived from, and from that qi, 
or energy, a specific profile of consciousness, or Shen, is derived. Ideally, we want to be able to move easily from parasympathetic, relaxed Shen to fight-or-flight sympathetic Shen, and then back to parasympathetic, relaxed Shen, without getting too stuck in each state. We therefore need an effective messenger negative feedback system of hormones and neurotransmitters, those Jing substances like acetylcholine. As we age, the synthesis and stimulation-induced release of acetylcholine decreases. The response by neurons to acetylcholine on the far side of synapses, the gaps in between neurons where electrochemical signals are passed, also diminishes with age. Laying the foundation for Qigong theory, classical Chinese physicians describe this process that happens with age as original essential substances of the body, or Jing, being used up in the process of life. A defining characteristic of Qigong is an explicit attempt to slow down the aging process by slowing down the exhaustion of these essential substances. In Qigong theory, this can be achieved by increasing the efficiency of conversion of this Jing into energy. Popping back in with our old friend acetylcholine for a moment, acetylcholine causes a significant increase in the density, mass and DNA copy number of mitochondria. Mitochondria are a specialised little part or subunit of a cell found in almost all human body cells. They have many functions, but we can think of them as like the power stations of the cell, in the sense that they produce adenosine triphosphate, ATP, the molecular currency of energy in the body. In order for cells to grow, to move, to produce electrical impulses in our nerves and brains, or to do pretty much anything active, ATP, adenosine triphosphate, is used to release energy. As I've talked about in previous episodes of this podcast, whilst ATP isn't in and of itself qi, if there were ever a qi molecule, it would be ATP. So, Healthy mitochondria are absolutely essential for the production of energy. We can therefore extend our understanding of what Jing is to include mitochondria. Mitochondrial biogenesis, the process by which new mitochondria are generated by the ones that are already existing, decreases with the aging process as well as other factors like excess stress hormones, glucocorticoids, and a diet rich in excess carbs. Excess carbohydrates can lead to significant changes in the function and shape of mitochondria, particularly in brain cells, limiting those mitochondria's ability to effectively reproduce 
and to make ATP. Having a diet with a surplus of calories also damages mitochondria, since it leads to obesity and heightened inflammation, which increase free radicals made as a side effect of mitochondria producing ATP. So when mitochondria produce ATP, which stores and releases energy for our body, they also produce free radicals. And those free radicals then, in turn, damage mitochondrial biogenesis. So restricting your calorie intake can protect your mitochondria from premature degeneration. And the degeneration of mitochondria is a key sign of aging. This is one of the ways that intermittent fasting can help you stay younger for longer. As when you restrict your calorie intake, mitochondria increase oxygen efficiency and reduce the byproducts of the production of ATP, which create oxidative stress that occurs in the presence of too many free radicals without compromising ATP production. So intermittent fasting kickstarts mitochondrial biogenesis, as well as protecting mitochondria when they are reproducing. Ancient Chinese Taoists were, in many cases, obsessed with finding elixirs of immortality. Consuming these potions, called Dan, has been a big part of Qigong throughout the ages. Qin Shi Huang, the man we sometimes call the first emperor, even though he was far from it, who united China in 221 BC after the Warring States period and whose son built the Terracotta Warriors, was absolutely obsessed with consuming these old-school supplements. In fact, he was so obsessed with making these Dan supplements, ironically, he died of mercury poisoning after thinking that mercury was the way to achieve eternal life. Fast forward a few millennia, and we've got much better at making Dan Alexias, the modern-day equivalent of which would be supplements. So Qigong practitioners needn't guzzle down goblets of mercury anymore, but we might benefit a lot from taking some supplements. There are many foods and supplements that boost mitochondrial function and that limit oxidative stress, like omega-3s and alpha-lipoic acid. We can get these in our diet from eating lots of vegetables like broccoli, carrots and spinach and easily supplementing omega-3 with plant-based DHA and EPA from algae. You could try to get all of your omega-3s from oily fish like sardines but there are lots of other issues with consuming a mountain full of sardines every day. Essential supplements for boosting mitochondrial biogenesis also include coenzyme Q10, or COQ10, and pyroloquinoline quinone, or PQQ. So take your COQ10 and your PQQ every day if you want to stay young and healthy. There are also plants that can boost the function and preserve the decline of mitochondria. 
along with reducing oxidative stress, influencing energy metabolism, and improving mitochondrial function, ginseng also has beneficial effects on metabolic profile by preserving mitochondrial function and protecting against intracellular inflammation. Curcumin, found in turmeric, has been shown to have considerable neuro and mitochondrial protective properties. Tanchinones, which are active constituents in the plant red sage, a commonly used herb in the Chinese Materia Medica called danshan, has also been shown to have a mitochondrial protective function. Other things that have been proven to enhance mitochondrial health are physical exercise, short bursts of exposure to extreme temperatures, and exposure to sunlight. All of this is, I feel, the real message of Qigong. If you want to live long by not prematurely burning up the essential substances in your body that produce energy, then reduce psychological life stress without reducing physical stress on the body. Don't eat too much. Eat healthily. Occasionally fast. Take a sauna and consider doing the Wim Hof method take some supplements, get plenty of physical exercise, and lots of sunlight. You really don't need a fancy degree, fluency in Chinese, or decades of practice to know all of this. None of this is particularly esoteric, but it does take a willingness to abandon unhealthy lifestyles. If you want to, it's actually a lot easier to get your health basics in check than it is to learn esoteric Qigong practices. People often look to Qigong as a cure or panacea, thinking that with advanced level practice, all of one's health issues will be magically solved. Everything that I've ever learned about Qigong over the years, however, has explicitly pointed to two facts. First, that the real meaning of Qigong in general is to preserve essential substances that make energy through lifestyle and supplements, what used to be called zuo dan in Taoism. And secondly, that if you want to develop any of those specialist effects of bioelectric Qigong that we'll go deep into later, then you need to first have a very healthy body. Psychological stress and an unhealthy lifestyle damage the body's ability to produce energy and eventually store and release that energy. So far, we've looked at three different types of Qigong. We've seen that exercise in general is Qigong. We've looked at meditation as Qigong. And we've touched upon hard and soft structural Qigong all of which contain some form of breath work. So, what is this mysterious final category of Qigong? Bioelectric Qigong. For that, and all the juicy details of the true story that, I think, defies the currently known laws of physics that I began telling at the beginning of this episode, you'll have to tune in to the next episode of Critical Mind Embodied Spirit. What on Earth is Qigong Part 2? Bioelectrical Qigong. A critical approach from an insider. 
If you liked this content, make sure you hit the subscribe button to hear more from Critical Mind Embodied Spirit. See you in the next show.